All right, let's turn again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning. The earliest letters that Paul wrote to the infant church are addressed to the Galatians and Thessalonians. And he based those letters on personal experience of preaching uh, in those uh, cities, the gospel to them, and then also reports from his colleagues and from other churches who had heard about them. And from that information, he had to rebuke the churches of Galatia because they were in danger of falling away from the Lord. And his letter to them is the only one he wrote to a church that did not commend them or, or uh, give thanksgiving for something. Now, on the other hand, he commends the church of the Thessalonians even though he had been there for just a short period of time. And when he and his cohorts prayed uh, for this church, there were things about it that caused him to give thanks to God. First of all, they remembered their virtues of Christian faith, love, and hope, and those are really basic uh, to those who trust in Christ. These are qualities that they will develop in their life. Paul was also thankful for the election of those who made up the church of God in that city, which also was evidenced by different things, such as their reception of the gospel in the first place, despite the, the uh, deep affliction that they were going through, their example to other churches, their proclamation of the gospel, and their patient waiting for Christ's return. So as we begin to look at these truths today, I wonder what other Christians and churches would say about our church. Would they see the same virtues and values that Paul commends in the life of the Thessalonian church? Would they observe the fruits of election in us as we receive and then proclaim the gospel? Would we be a pattern church that they could join and follow? So may God help us to be a gathering of called out believers that can be commended for our faithfulness to the Lord. Let's ask his blessing as we continue. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful for your word today. We're thankful, Lord, for its truth, for its power, and for uh, how it worked in this ancient church at Thessalonica. And Lord, we know that uh, we have this epistle in our hands today because it speaks to us as well. We pray, Lord, you would help us to be a church that is commended in a similar way that Paul commended that church. Help us, Lord, to be uh, exhibiting the Christian virtues of faith and love and hope. Help us, Lord, to be thankful that you have chosen us unto salvation. And Lord, all these other things that we'll be talking about, uh, help us, Lord, to develop them in our own life personally and our corporate life as a church. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at two areas in which Paul thanks God for this church uh, in Thessalonica. 
First of all, in the first uh, couple of verses here, Paul's thankful uh, for the Christian virtues he observed in that church. And we, too, ought to develop a habit of thanksgiving in prayer as we think about application in our current day. In verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for you. So the gospel team uh, consistently prays for this church. Uh, He begins by saying, we give thanks. So that would include probably Silas and Timothy who helped him develop the church there. As they came, they preached for the first time. People began to believe and they were able to establish a church. And as the uh, uh, Apostle Paul has to move to a new area and later on Timothy and Silas join him, they don't forget about these converts back in Thessalonica and they pray for them faithfully. Now when he says he prays always for you, obviously that doesn't mean 24-7, uh, but it does mean that every time they come together and they pray, they're reminded of this church and they're praying for them and about them in different ways. And uh, this is a habit that Paul had as he very often tells these churches that he's praying for them. Uh, And as they prayed, they thanked the Lord for that church. Now, I mentioned to you just a moment ago that Paul did this in every letter except to his letter to the Galatian churches He could find something in all of these churches to commend them, something that he could thank God for. There were areas in their lives that they were progressing and they were growing spiritually. So let me ask you a question this morning. Do you pray for the members of your church? I want you to know that as your pastor, I pray for you on a weekly basis I hope that you make a serious effort to pray for each other in the same way. Uh, We need to have that kind of interest in the people that we uh, come to gather with and worship the Lord with. We need to have a desire to see them grow in Christ and to pray that they would do so. And so we've got to have some time on a regular, consistent basis whereby we do that. And then another question kind of pops up here. Do you pray for others with thanksgiving? Are there things in the life of other believers that you observe and you can be thankful for? Now, this struck me in regard to my own prayers. Do I stress the areas for which I can be thankful to God for different individuals who know the Lord is their Savior? It's a lot easier for us to pray in a general way. Uh, God bless so-and-so and their family. Or help uh, them to have a good day. Uh, Or we can pray negatively. Lord, you know this person has this problem, and I pray that you'll help them get it straightened out. Well, there are some times that that might be legitimate. And maybe somebody prays in that way for you to pray for them. But it seems we should be looking for those spiritual qualities that we can commend and pray the Lord will continue to build those things in the lives of our uh, fellow Christians. So we should develop a habit of thankfulness in regard to our praying for our community of believers right here. 
Then Paul goes on to specifically mention some virtues for which we can be thankful. So we find here that we should be thankful for Christian virtues expressed by fellow believers. Now, Paul uh, introduces here for the first time in his writings this triad of Christian qualities, faith, love, and hope. That comes up a lot in his future writings. And they are in a logical order here. Faith obviously has to come first because we are saved by grace through faith, through trusting the Lord. We believe that Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he offered himself as a substitute who paid the penalty of our sin, and then he arose again for our justification and redemption. So we've got to trust in those things initially to begin to develop the kind of faith that God wants us to. Faith then proceeds to love and other Christian virtues. We find these in actually the writings to the Galatian church, the fullness of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Um, uh, This is a kind of love we can't really experience outside of salvation. Uh, This is the result of God bestowing his love upon us through Christ so that we can love him and we can love others like Jesus loves us, unselfishly and sacrificially. Hope involves our future and how we look at it. Uh, We're now secure in knowing that we will be with Christ for eternity because he saved us for that. And we are looking forward to his return to earth where he will rule with his saints. Now, let me just uh, read a couple of sentences here that uh, commentators wrote. First of all, faith rests on the past. Love works in the present and hope looks to the future. Another one said, faith looks back to a crucified Savior, love looks up to a crowned Savior, and hope looks forward to a coming Savior. So that's kind of a general way of looking at these three qualities. Now, let's consider them a little bit mm, uh, uh, deeply here. First of all, Paul commends the church, thanks God for the church, for work produced by faith. Faith for Paul, one commentator wrote, is a warm personal trust in a living Savior, and such faith cannot but transform the whole life and uh, issue in, in work of many kinds. So when we come to know Christ as our Savior, Initially, we put our faith and trust in him, and as time proceeds, that will develop into works that we do for God uh, and good works that are produced in our own life. So he's not focusing here so much on the initial faith of salvation, but what it produces in your life and mine. Remember, James in his book stressed that faith without works is dead. In other words, if you say you have faith and there's no uh, uh, work involved in that as far as 
Christian character, helping other people, doing good things that God says you should do in his word, then your faith is questionable. So we prove our trust in God by living a life that reflects the works of Christ. We also exercise our faith by understanding and believing that whatever the Lord brings into our life is according to his will and purposes, even when those things may be difficult. And the Lord tests and builds our faith through many trials. So again, faith is fundamental to the Christian life. Now, he also mentions here labor motivated by love. The New Testament authors took a little-used Greek term for love and really made it exclusively Christian in its application. And this is spiritual love. It's an attribute of God expressed in his sending Jesus into the world to save us from our sin. It's self-effacing love, self-sacrificing love that puts its focus not on yourself, but on others before yourself. Now, only a believer in Christ can experience this kind of love and begin to sense and develop it in his or her life. But expressing this kind of love is not natural and it is not easy. One commentator wrote, labor of love is the toilsome, laborious activity that is prompted and sustained by love when the going gets hard. The stress on the word labor is on the cost, the exertion, fatigue, and exhaustion that it entails. So that is in no way an easy kind of love. So why is this love so difficult for us to develop? Well, one reason is because it's not according to our natural inclination of selfishness. We cannot consistently put other people first uh, and ourselves last if we do not trust God to help us do that, if we don't make a conscious effort of it. We don't really have any capacity within us as a person without God operating his power and giving us that love we need to bestow on others as he's bestowed it on us. Another reason is there are many people we view that seem to us unlovely, undeserving of love, or people who treat us wrongly. Why should I love them? Or people that we look at and they're just desperately wicked sinners. And yet, that's the way we were in the eyes of God before we got saved. So we can't look in the wrong way on other people who need the love of God. Uh, there may be many reasons not to labor in love, but those are not valid reasons. So we need to pray for God to give us his constant grace to develop this unselfish type of love in our hearts and lives. The last thing that Paul mentions here is endurance inspired by hope. 
So this is the idea of patience, patient endurance. Again, patience of hope is that combination of heroic endurance and manly constancy that courageously faces various obstacles, trials, and persecutions which may befall the believer in his conflict with the inward and outward world. So as we have this hope of the future, of being with Christ, of going to heaven, of serving with him when he returns, of spending all of eternity with him, that's a great hope, but we're not going to fully experience it until he comes or we die. So in the meanwhile, we have to have patience that that hope gives us, knowing that that's the end we're going to. And we can endure in hope because our future is secure in Christ. And we know that even if we are afflicted, even if we are persecuted, even if we go through hardships in life, that one day we'll reach the end of the goal uh, with the Lord in heaven. And that encourages us to keep on keeping on. We know that all the glorious promises of his word will eventually be fulfilled in our life and in the church and in the world. And that helps us to endure with patience everything we go through in this life. Now, Paul reminds us of the source of these virtues, which of course is very important, when he says, uh, your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how they come to us. Uh, because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus. If we don't know him, then we cannot possess or demonstrate these values. Many people have faith in something. As a matter of fact, we've gotten to the point where the faith has no object. Somebody says, they might just say, well, I have faith. Well, what do you have faith in? That's the important thing. You can have faith in something, but if it's not Christ, it's of no value, and it cannot produce uh, uh, spiritual fruit. People may love on the human level. We can't deny that. We have, you know, family love and spousal love and things of that nature. But without Christ, people cannot live and love on the highest and most valuable plane, which is self-sacrificing. People may have a little patience, but they cannot endure to the end without the Lord, and they have no eternal hope aside from him. He also mentions here, all of this is in the sight of our God and Father. So that tells us, reminds us, that God the Father is always aware of what's going on in the world, and he's knows what's going on in your life and mine, and he observes us as his children. And as we want to help our children grow the way they ought to and come to know the Lord and uh, have the best they can have in life, God perfectly wants that for his people. So all of this is done in the sight of God, who is our heavenly Father. Now, these qualities should be present and always growing in the life of his people. So today, are you proving your faith by 
obeying the Lord and developing good works in your life? Are you manifesting this uncommon love for other Christians and unbelievers that may cost you something from time to time? Are you willing to sacrifice your energy and your time and your possessions to help people in need and get the gospel out to those who are lost? And then are you confident and patient about the future and all of God's promises being fulfilled, or are you overwhelmed by daily life and the events that you're going through and the wickedness of the world? We need to have patient endurance until he comes. Now let's consider then the second area in which Paul thanks God for this church. And he mentions this in verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now that's the third participle uh, that Paul thanks the uh, Lord for something. Back up here in verse 2, making mention of you in our prayers. That's the first one. Then remembering without ceasing and what follows there, and now knowing something about the church. Uh, Before we get into that, though, let's notice here that believers should be thankful for their new family. Paul addresses them as beloved brethren. Okay, so as you go through this epistle and the second epistle, you're going to find that terminology 21 times. So this shows his affection for uh, God's people. Uh, the term brethren includes brothers and sisters, so we, should, we could translate it that way. Beloved brothers and sisters. And the literal phrase here uh, is brethren beloved of God. Okay, and knowing your election. So in this way, Paul acknowledges that uh, those who come to Christ have entered a new family relationship with God and his people. God has demonstrated his love for them in that while they were yet sinners, Christ died for them. And when they trusted Jesus as Savior, they entered the family of God. So that means that all of us who know the Lord today are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are loved by God, our Heavenly Father, and therefore we can love each other in a similar way. And this really is a great comfort to believers, especially those who may not have experienced a great family relationship themselves in uh, uh, this world. Thinking back to the people in Thessalonica, many of those who came to Christ came through uh, a Jewish family background or a pagan family background. The Jewish background would have been a little better because at least they worshiped the one God, but they were legalistic and they were missing out on their Messiah. The pagans, of course, were polytheistic and worshiped all kinds of gods, so that wasn't good for you. And if you um, came to know Christ as your Savior, I don't know what's with that thing, uh, you would have to kind of turn your back on that family religious belief system. And if you did that, 
that might make them mad at you or that might make them say, okay, we don't want anything to do with you. And so you're basically sacrificing the earthly family relationship, but coming into God's family uh, of people who know the Lord Jesus, well, that makes up for any difficulties you might experience as far as persecution uh, from your uh, your uh, literal family. So uh, this would have been something uh, important to them as they hear the apostle repeating this over and over again, beloved brethren. Now, uh, as we continue here in the rest of verse 4 and verse 5 and what follows, believers should be thankful for their election. And Paul is thankful for his knowledge of this election. Now, that doesn't mean he had an intuitive knowledge. Rather, he had an observational knowledge by his experience with them. Paul knows that the Thessalonian believers are among God's elect by what he and others have seen develop in their lives. And we'll get uh, into that a little bit more next time. But right now, let's just think about this idea of election and what it is. Divine election is a thorny doctrine that pricks our understanding because it involves infinite wisdom and knowledge of God that we don't fully comprehend. And there are just some truths in Scripture that we receive by faith because God gave them to us. We can't fully grasp it. Um, but even so, we know that what God says is right, and we're going to believe and trust that. For instance, the eternal nature of God, the concept of eternity itself, something outside of time. Um, do you get that? Do you fully understand how a being could have no beginning and no ending? how we can exist in time and eventually in eternity. Yet this is what the Bible teaches about the nature of God. We could add to that the teaching on the Trinity, the incarnation of Christ, and many other doctrines of the Bible. We can't fully get our minds around them because we're not infinite, we're not God, we can't understand everything. But we know that it's true because God's given it to us. Now, the doctrine of election involves the choice of God in eternity past determining that all would not remain in their lost condition, deserving of judgment, but that some would be saved. <clears throat> and again, we have to understand the truth that all human beings are guilty sinners before a just and holy God, and we deserve eternal condemnation for our sins, which are really more than we can probably even count. So if God had not determined that some should be saved, guess how many would have been saved? Zero. None. So God makes sure that there are going to be people who believe and come into his kingdom. Leon Morris wrote, It is not a device for sentencing men to eternal torment, but for rescuing them from it. Election protects us from thinking salvation as dependent on human whims and roots it squarely in the will of God. In Romans 
Paul calls this the election by grace. Again, we don't deserve it, but God uh, made sure it was going to happen. In Ephesians, Paul connects it with our sanctification and our adoption. Let me read what he says there from Ephesians 1. Just as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So this is the means by which God maps out our life. He's determined we're going to be saved, and he brings everything into uh, into, uh, the circumstances of our life that will bring us to that point, and we put our faith and trust in Christ. Now, we may wonder, why did God ordain that everybody not be saved? Well, I can't fully answer that either. But I do know this, God is glorified in the just judgment of rebellious sinners. And people are accountable for their actions and for the rejection of God's means of salvation. And God would not be just to just say, okay, everybody's going to be saved, and we're not really going to have to deal with this issue of sin. So these truths stand in tension with each other, but both are taught and God's word, God's sovereign election, and then man's responsibility to believe. And although we may not fully comprehend election, we certainly can see why we should be thankful for it. Now, how then did Paul know this church, these people were God's elect? Well, first of all, by the way the word of God came to them. And this finishes out chapter 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. So he's going back to the reasons he knows they're elect. It has to do with their reception of the word and that initial coming of the word to them. And he makes it clear that that gospel, that good news in Christ Jesus, did not just come in word. Now, obviously, it has to come in words. It has to come through preaching. It has to come through communication, and we communicate each other through words. But human words, no matter how lofty, how eloquent, they cannot bring the truth of the gospel to fruition in the souls of men without the accompanying spiritual power. So the gospel did not just come by the word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. Power here is not human energy, Uh, such as the intensity of a preacher when he speaks the words or the eloquence of how he uh, relates the words or in pounding a pulpit to get it into your head. This power is spiritual in nature and it's generated by God's Holy Spirit. And so through that word, which is empowered by the Holy Spirit, it begins to penetrate the mind and the heart of people who will listen to it. 
I pray every Sunday that that's how God will empower me. I hope you pray the same. But Paul also mentions that it came in much assurance. So what does that mean? Well, this alludes to the full conviction of the preacher that God is going to produce results. Someone stated it this way. They worked in a spirit-wrought conviction and certainty as to the validity of their message and had unshaken confidence in its ultimate triumph. Now, I remember an occasion some years ago while I was in India that kind of brings this all out. We were holding a Bible conference at People's Baptist uh, Church uh, and Bible College, and Brother Nair was supposed to bring the uh, concluding message. But he was out of town. He was being delayed. He didn't know if he was going to be able to make it. So he calls me three hours before the meeting and asked me to preach for him because he's not sure he can get there. Well, uh, I went to study the word and God gave me the words to be communicated from the Bible. But here's one issue. There were three translators. So that means the word was going out in four languages. And sometimes uh, that can be a little complicated when three people are repeating what you just said, then it comes back to you for the next sentence or two. But all of us uh, were assured that the presence of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit was working through us. There was just a connection between all of us and five people came to know Christ that evening. So there is this this concept, this assurance that you have when the word of God is being brought in words that are empowered by the Holy Spirit, they are fruitful. So it's through the Spirit-filled, confident preaching of God's word that he brings his elect into his kingdom. But Paul adds one other thought here that is also very important as he finishes out verse 5. As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So, the life of the preacher is also involved in the presentation of the word. The conduct of the preacher supports the message that's preached. And if the one who presents the gospel is not living it out in his life, then he might as well just keep silent. The way Paul, Silas, and Timothy conducted themselves in the city of Thessalonica did not detract from the word preached, but evidenced the power of the gospel in their own lives. And that's so important, especially in the day in which we live. So let's wrap this up and just kind of go back through uh, some of these applications. First of all, do... You pray consistently for one another, and are those prayers seasoned with some meat of thanksgiving as to how the Lord is working in the lives of the other people? And will you make that a matter of consideration in your prayer life? Secondly, 
Are you growing in these elemental virtues of the Christian faith? Is your faith in God producing visible works of character and also just good works in helping other people? That's where the love comes in. Are you laboring in love to help others in need and ministering to your fellow believers? Are you patiently enduring the difficulties that God brings into your life as you await Christ's coming? These are all in the plan of God for you and I as believers. Then, are you thankful that you are one of God's elect who is saved by grace? We can't fully comprehend it, but we certainly ought to be thankful for it. That God reached down in mercy and redeemed your soul and mine from eternal death. And if that is something that we have grasped and we're thankful for, it should motivate us to reach others with the gospel. That's one of the good works we do. That's a labor of love we're involved in, and we do this until the Lord returns. So we don't know who the elect are. So that means we have an obligation to share the gospel with anyone that God might bring our way. And may the Lord help us to follow the example of the Thessalonian church today. Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have preserved it, that we have the same letter today that was written a couple thousand years ago to a faithful church that the Apostle Paul could commend for its faith and its love and its patience and for the fact that the way it was being fruitful proved their election. And Lord, help us to be the same type of people and the same kind of church that evidences these things in a way that others can obviously see them. Help us to pray for each other. Help us to be thankful for the progress that you're making in our lives. And help us, Lord, to be fruitful and uh, demonstrate these things so we might help others come into your kingdom as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.